so happy that this is actually happening. When we first talked about family camp, there were a few of us elders. Some of us were dreaming about it. Some of us were indifferent about it. I was one of the dreamers. And uh, so it's really sweet to see something becoming a reality. Uh, I think it's really sweet because something like this can become a tradition, and a tradition can shape the generations, and shaping the generations can have a huge impact for a long time to come. And so it feels like that's small beginnings, but God can do great things. Uh, so we'll just have open hands and see what he does. We decided to uh, start off our family camp with maybe the most controversial topic that I've ever taught on, that we've ever taught on. So I know Pastor Sam last night was lamenting that uh, there weren't many people here yet. Some of the people who signed up had not arrived yet. And a weak part of me was like, I'm, I'm alright with that for this first talk. <laughs> but no, I'm thankful for each person that's here. I know the group that's here is a group that God wants to be here. And so, uh, let's just pray that he does great things. Father, please be present here as we talk about your good design for husbands and wives and for marriage. Give us attentive ears, give us humble hearts, and, uh, and work through my words for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking on God's design for husbands and wives. The title of this talk is Lessons from the Garden on Marriage. And so if you'd like to, please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. We're not going to read that all right now. We're actually just going to skip around in those chapters over the next 30 to 40 minutes and observe some things from the story. Now this is how the Bible begins. And God begins his word with a story. And stories show us things rather than tell us things. You guys see that difference? Like a lot of places in the Bible, like letters especially, the Bible tells us things. And I love it when the Bible tells us things because it's really clear. Don't do this. Do this. This is who Jesus is. I also love when the Bible shows us things in stories. Because what stories do is they imaginatively depict spiritual realities. And the reason the Bible, I believe the Bible and God wants to show us things in imaginative ways is so that we would love them. It helps us to love truth when we see it beautifully portrayed. And I think we see truth beautifully portrayed in these first chapters of the Bible. And that's my hope this morning, is that we would grow to love God's good plan for marriage and for gender in marriage. Right at this point in the world, at our cultural moment, there's really just two paths we can take. One path is the path of the world, which would be just to reject God's plan, or turn from God's plan, or find some subtle way to distance ourselves from God's plan and not talk about it. The other way, the one that we're going to take, is we're going to look at the scriptures and see what God has said, what God has shown us, and what God's design are for men and women, especially as it is in marriage. Now, if you're single this morning, we're so glad you're here because this, while this talk is about marriage, it's also about masculinity and femininity. Marriage is this place where masculinity and femininity finds a very clear and full expression. And so, all of us are going to be learning things about ourselves this morning, but especially we want to apply these things to marriage and think about 
what God teaches about men and women in a marriage relationship. So basically, just the outline of the talk is we're going to make 16 observations from Genesis 1 through 3 with a little application at the end. So a lot of these will be pretty quick hitters. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on all of these observations. Uh, another point is that um, when you're interpreting a story, some, some, some interpretations are more clear and some are less clear. And so some of these, and we just have to use our discernment, we really want to hold on to and say, I think that's what God's saying in the story. And that is especially helpful in other places in the Bible to clarify that that's right, you are reading the story right. And some other things, it's just, we're trying to interpret the story as best as we can. And this is where I think it's pointing, but it's okay to hold on to some of these things with an open hand saying, we're interpreting literature here. And that's, a, that's an art rather than a science. And there's some room for differing views and ways of seeing how the, how the story portrays reality. So with the first observations, we're going to look at the similarities or the symmetry between men and women. So the story of Genesis tells a story that sets men and women on the same plane in some ways, portrays them as similar, as symmetrical. And then there's other ways the story portrays men and women as different or asymmetrical. And both the similarities and the differences both display glorious things. And we never want to just see the way that God says men and women are similar and neglect the ways that they're different. Nor do we just want to focus on the differences and miss the ways that they're similar. Either one of those are a ditch that doesn't give us the full picture. So let's start by looking at some of the ways that there's some symmetry, and then we'll move into asymmetry. Observation one. When God created both man and woman, he created them in his image. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his image, own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This means that in any marriage, both the husband and wife have equal worth and value. We should never take anything that the Bible teaches to imply that either the husband or the wife has more or less value than the other person. One thing we're going to see as we go through this story and, and make different observations is that the husband and the wife have different roles. But different roles do not imply difference in value. Different roles, same value, both in the image. Observation two. God gave both the man and the woman joint rule over creation in the mandate to subdue it and fill it. Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over and then God says basically just everything. Everything out there you have dominion over. So he blesses both the husband and the wife to fulfill this purpose. God has a mandate and a mission for marriage that both the husband and the wife participate in and which both the husband and wife exercise authority. So there's not just one person with authority and one person without authority. In the story, at the beginning, we see both the husband and the wife with authority together over everything else God has made. Observation three. God gives the woman to a man as a solution to the problem he faced. He said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, Genesis 2.18. If you read the story, you'll notice that Adam never said, I feel lonely. 
Right? That's often how we interpret that line. But Adam never said, I feel lonely, God. Would you please help me not be lonely? No, rather, God declared it wasn't good for him to be alone. So God had given the man a mission to subdue the earth, to fill it, to be fruitful and multiply, to work the earth. And he couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't do it. He was incapable of fulfilling the mission that God gave him. And so when God creates the woman and gives, them to, gives her to the first husband, he's making it possible for Adam to do the thing that he was created to do. Which is why I think when Adam first sees his wife Eve, he celebrates. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For God took her out, out of me. And similarly, she needs her husband to be able to fulfill her purpose. And so, in any righteous good marriage, there's a treasuring of the other person above everything else God has made. If you're married, your greatest treasure in this life is your spouse. And that's exactly what we see in this story. God makes a whole bunch of things, and Adam only writes a poem about one thing, his wife. And so the greatest treasure in this life is the spouse that you're married to. And Adam's greatest celebration is in his wife. Observation four. When the Lord first made man... He put him in a garden. Right, Genesis 2.8 says, And the Lord planted a garden in the east, in the east of Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. <laughs> then he makes a woman, and he puts the woman in a garden with him. So God creates the first human beings and puts them in a flourishing garden. I think this is a way of saying that God's purpose for humanity is to flourish like the garden in which they're planted, in which they're placed. And in, in a healthy marriage, both the husband and the wife should be flourishing. Right? If both the husband and the wife are not flourishing, it is not because there is a flaw with God's plan. There is a flaw with our application of his plan. The Bible everywhere teaches that in a healthy marriage, both the husband and wife are flourishing. And so if they're not, we shouldn't blame God as if it's his fault and try to come up with our own plan for marriage. Rather, we should see where we're falling short of his plan, humbly repent and change. So those are four ways, four areas of symmetry in the story. Four ways that the husband and the wife are very much the same or similar in God's design and in God's plan. Now, let's move on to some areas of dissimilarity or asymmetry. And this is going to show the distinction between men and women, between husbands and wives. And what we're wanting to see is the ways that God wisely and benevolently created and designed men and women to be different, especially in the context of marriage. Okay. Observation five. While both the man and the woman are in the image of God and both have authority, they are given different tasks and domains on which they should focus. God creates the man outside of the garden and gives him the charge to work and to keep the garden. Working and keeping the garden, if you follow through with this task, 
would cultivate the earth around the garden and drive the boundaries of the Garden of Eden outward. You guys, he's made outside of the garden, and his work would cause the boundaries of the garden to extend outwards. On the other hand, when God makes the woman, he makes her within the garden. Detail in the story, if you look closely, he makes her within the garden. And this tends to suggest that the woman has a special focus towards the inner world of the garden or the home where God had placed them. So as you think about masculinity and femininity, as you think about how it expresses itself in marriage, the man's orientation is going to tend to be more outward to the areas outside of the home cultivating and shaping them while never neglecting the home and working the ground from which he was taken while the woman's orientation is going to tend to be more towards the inward world of the home and towards the husband from whom she was taken. Observation six. In line with these different domains or roles, the curse affects the man and the woman differently. So remember when Adam and Eve sinned, there's, there's a curse, there's, there's consequences. And the curse actually is, or the consequences are to the man and to the woman and the serpent, and the consequences to the man and the woman are different. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, Genesis 3.16. And to the man he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So the hardship and judgment to the woman is related to the childbearing and child rearing within more the inward world. And then the judgment and consequence on the man is the difficulty in tilling the soil, which would be more focused towards the outward world. There's so much more that could be said about these different domains, and we're going to try to get back to it at the end. And the beautiful thing is this talk is not the comprehensive talk. There's way more conversations we can have as a church about what these means and how these things apply. This is just starting to lay kind of a foundation for how we can think about these things together. So another area of asymmetry or distinction we see is the degrees of authority the man and the woman have. The story is clear that at the beginning that the man and the wife both have authority. In Genesis 1.28, they're both given dominion. Both man and woman have authority. Yet the narrative is also going to clarify that they have different degrees of authority. Here's one way to think about it. The narrative seems to be depicting Adam and Eve as the first king and queen over the world. In any, in most healthy, or in most uh, places and times, just thinking about a king and a queen, and a kingdom, the king has a higher authority than the queen. Yet the queen still has a real authority. And in any good kingdom, she's honored and dignified by both the king and the kingdom. So anything less than that would be a distortion, or an error, or a failure. So let's keep observing things from the story and seeing more of this area of asymmetry or this different degrees of authority 
within the first marriage. Observation seven. God created the man before the woman. In addition, God created the woman from the man. Genesis 2.18. This order and the source of the woman points to God's good design of the authority in the household. The Apostle Paul is going to refer back to this story in both Colossians and Ephesians. And it seems like the, the woman's source being from the man and the in time, the man being made before the woman points toward this different degree of authority. Now I want to make another observation, lest we misunderstand what this means. Observation 8. By making Eve from Adam's side, God clarifies that whatever authority the husband has, he must exercise it in a loving and cherishing manner. When Paul says in Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now why would he say that? A husband should love his wife as his own body. Because when we go back to the first story, the first wife was literally taken from the body of the first husband. I think one thing God is saying in that is husbands, men in a marriage, right? you might be, have a higher degree of authority, but if you do not treat your wife with the same degree of love, affection, and care that you treat your own body, you're failing. Right? He could have made the wife from the dirt, couldn't he? Could have, just like he made the man. But he made her from his body, showing that his call to him is to treat her as well as he treats his own body. And then Moses writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God makes the man into two, so he can make him into one again with his wife. Observation 9. The husband's authority comes with responsibility to care for his wife. Just as there is a dependence of the man on the ground from which he was taken, there is a dependence of the wife on the husband from whom she was taken. A loving husband must provide for and protect his wife. Adam's charge to work and to keep the garden, if we want to translate that in another way, you can then further clarify it could be translated as cultivate and guard the garden, which would include everything inside of the garden, including his greatest treasure, his wife. Paul says the way a husband loves his wife is as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus provided for and protected his bride at the price of his own life. This means that the husband's exercise of authority should not be about privileging himself, but laying down his life for the good of his wife and his family. Moreover, as we read the story of Genesis and the other scriptures, it never emphasizes that the husband should protect the wife because she's helpless. It's never something it says. Rather, the emphasis of the story is that Adam should care for and protect his wife because she's valuable. You see the difference there? 
The story never says she's helpless, rather it says she's valuable. All we see is him celebrating when God creates her. That's the reason why he cares and protects her, because of her incomparable value to him. So let us not distort or dilute God's storyline with our worldly assumptions by making some inference that the story never makes. Right? In this calling to care for and protect our wives, we must never demean our wives by saying something about them the Bible never says about them. Yes, there is a strength in physicality God gave especially to men, but that is not the same thing as saying women are helpless. Rather, we should think of them as valuable. Um, there's this quote from Tarzan of the Apes where Tarzan first sees Jane, Jane Porter and um, the author writes, Tarzan knew that she was created to be protected and he was created to protect her. And my hope for myself, my hope for husbands and aspiring husbands is that God would so shape our hearts to feel that way about our wives because they're valuable beyond all else to us in this life. Now I want to get even more practical. What should a husband's and wife's authority look like and not look like in the home from day to day? Observation 10. God created Adam with the purpose to work and to keep the garden, Genesis 2.15. He gives Adam this purpose and this mission before he created Eve. Adam has the mission from God to work and to keep the garden before he created Eve, Genesis 2.15 which seems to imply that he would have to subsequently bring his wife into that mission, share it with her, and then together go about and accomplish and fulfill it together. This seems to imply that the husband should have vision and direction for his wife and for his family, both in how he will provide for his family and how his family will expand God's kingdom together. Just as Christ had a vision and direction for his church, we can see that in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, so also husbands who should lead like Christ should have vision and direction for their families. Of course, any husband worth his salt will weigh his wife's words carefully as he tries to cast this vision. After all, the narrative is clear that she is his helper, and maybe in the story, the way things are unfolding, one way you can think of helper is as chief advisor. And if God gave you the task to come up with a mission, and he created a chief advisor for you, and you don't listen to the chief advisor, you're a fool. You're a fool. If you're trying to cast a vision for your family, and you're not using the greatest gift God gave you to cast that vision for the family, you're, you're really, really in foolish territory. Husbands, do your wives and family know where you want to take your family? What is your plan for family worship and how your family will grow in spiritual maturity? How do you want to engage your neighbors with the gospel? How do you want your vocation to fit together with these things? If there's not clarity on where your marriage and family is going and how you want to get there, it's time to sit down with your chief advisor and pray and labor to produce this kind of clarity. In addition to his purpose to work and keep the garden, 
this observation 11. God gave Adam the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's also before he created Eve. God gave Adam a mission and God gave Adam a command before he created the woman. This seems to imply that it was the man's responsibility to teach his wife this command and encourage her to follow it along with him. And sure enough, later in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 14, we see the Apostle Paul referring to husbands who are teaching in the home, teaching their wives. Husbands should take the primary initiative to cultivate spirituality in their marriage and home. I want to emphasize two words, primary and initiative. I did not say exclusive initiative. Women who are made in God's image and have his spirit have wise insights from the scriptures that their husbands and families need to benefit from. I do almost on a daily basis. I have an incredibly wise wife, and I would never be the man of God I am today were it not for her, and I won't become the man of God that God wants me to be if it's not for her insights and wisdom. So it's not the exclusive job of the husband to exhort, encourage, and even to teach. However, God has tasked men to lead their marriages and homes, Ephesians 5, 23. An essential aspect of that is spiritual leadership. The second word is initiative. Initiative means starting things, not doing everything yourself. While husbands should be the primary exhorter in a marriage, encouraging your wife and family towards faithfulness in God, it is equally important to unleash your wife and your children to use their spiritual gifts and engage in spiritual conversations in the home. I read, I read this book by uh, Kevin DeYoung called Men and Women in the Church, and um, it has chapters on marriage, and it's really helpful. And one of the things he does is he quotes John Piper um, as saying that the husband should be the one who uses the word let's the most. Let's. If you're a husband, that's, that's a key word, let's. Let's have family worship. Let's invite the neighbors over. Let's go on a prayer walk. Notice I never said that the wife shouldn't say let's. She should too. There should be initiation by both the husband and the wife in a healthy marriage. It's just that the man has the responsibility to lead the most in taking the initiative. Men, husbands, do your wives know what your spiritual vision is for your family and regularly feel you taking initiative by using the word let's? By using the word let's. And this is an area where I see God has grown me and still needs to grow me. Right? Because I have a very uh, active and wonderful wife and, and I could just sit back. And, but God has not called me to sit back. God has called me to initiate and guide. And so um, I want to grow in using the word Let's. Once there is a vision and direction set for the family, initiating by using the word let's is a way to go in that direction. Now, observation 12. God gave Eve the role of helper in Genesis 2, 20-22. God gave the man a mission and then he gave him an essential helper to fulfill the mission. Wives, are you your husband's chief encourager as he tries to follow God and lead your family? 
Have you gotten clarity on how you fit into your family's mission, and do you delight in that role? Do you need to ask your husband to discuss with you the family's direction so that there is more clarity? Are you making your thoughts and ideas known to him? After all, he needs your voice more than anyone else's voice in the world. If you're the particular special helper that God gave for your husband, he needs your voice more than any other voice in the world. And so if you're silent and not sharing your thoughts, ideas, desires, passions, hopes, the family is deprived. So please be bold and share those things that only you can see. Right? There's things that only the husband will be able to see, and there's things that only his wife will be able to see. So please share with your husband what's on your heart and your desires for the family, lest he and the whole family be impoverished of your unique insights, your unique giftings, your unique contribution. Wow. Amen. <laughs> if any wife walks away from this talk, talk of the thought that you should be passive in the home and simply do what your husband wants you to do. That's not right. The reality is that the husband and the wife are joint rulers over the creation and shows that the wife is meant to have an active role in shaping the family and carrying out the mission and she needs to use her words and gifts to do so. There's not active and passive. There's active and active in any healthy biblical marriage. Observation 13, the husband's greater authority is further seen in the fact that he names his wife twice. At first he names her the woman in 2.23, then he names her Eve in chapter 3, verse 20. In Hebrew, the word for woman derives from the Hebrew word man, just like it does in English. And the name Eve is connected to her role of bearing children as a helper fulfilling the joint mission. Now, like I said, we're observing a story and there's so much more to say. I don't want there to be a misunderstanding. In, in the original story, right, their, their mission is to bear children. That's still an important part of God's plan for marriage. But that isn't the ultimate purpose of marriage. The ultimate purpose of marriage is not to have biological children. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to glorify God by having spiritual children. And oh, may it be our natural children, who are also our spiritual children, and may God open the womb and give us all children for those who are pleading for them. But more than that, may God use each of our marriages to rescue people from sin and death and make them followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need to have children to fulfill God's ultimate purpose for your marriage. It's a good thing when you do, but it's a greater thing when you're used of him to rescue people from sin and death. Observation 14. The fall happens only after the husband forfeits his role as protector and leader and passively stands by his wife, as she, rather than him, talks to the serpent. Husband has a role of protector. He doesn't protect. He leaves his wife vulnerable to the serpent. God established the rule of order as follows. God, then the husband and wife, and then the husband and wife over everything else, including slithering serpents that crawl around on the ground. In the fall, we see the exact inverse of that. The serpent is influencing the wife as he passively sits by and is influenced by her, and everyone is rejecting God. Passive men wreak spiritual havoc. Passive men in the home wreak spiritual havoc. We've heard a lot of criticism about toxic masculinity, and we should because it's evil. 
Yet another spiritual evil is passive masculinity, where a man fails to spiritually form his wife and children and leaves it up to his overworked wife or the world to do it for him. The results are often a cold marriage, confused children, and a home that the world has shaped and damaged. Men, don't let this happen. Don't avoid toxic masculinity by embracing passive masculinity. Instead, embrace biblical masculinity that looks like being a servant and a humble leader, like Jesus. Observation 15. The husband's greater authority comes with greater accountability. When God seeks out the humans after they had sinned, he specifically addresses Adam and not Eve. He goes and calls Adam, where are you? Not Eve, where are you? Adam, where are you? It is the husband rather than the wife who must give an ultimate account about whether he and his family kept God's commands and flourished. It is the husband who has the first responsibility to make things right with God and take steps towards reconciliation with his wife when things go wrong. If there's sin in your family or there's coldness and hostility between you and your wife, husbands, you have the first initiative to go and make it right, not her. Please don't sit back and wait for her to make the first move. If God gave you a position of leadership, that means you have the responsibility to make the first move. Husbands, are there sins that you need to lead your family and wife in confessing or yourself in confessing? Or have you taken steps towards reconciliation with your wife if you're at odds with each other? And finally, observation 16. Thanks for sticking with me through an incredible number of observations. A healthy relationship between a husband and wife should look like a partnership and not a dictatorship. The ideal is a partnership where the husband and wife rule their realm together. That's what we see in Genesis 1. A partnership of ruling their realm together. Within their partnership, while there's a higher degree, a level of authority the husband has, the goal is that the husband would rule with his wife, not over his wife. In Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, after they had sinned, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is a distortion and a broken picture of what God first did in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the husband and wife are co-rulers together. After the fall, we see the wife having a desire to control her husband, and the husband responding with a harsh domination over his wife. That's the way of most of world history. And that is a sick and broken picture of what God had originally designed. John Calvin calls a man who does not love his wife a monster. A monster. Right? So you, God gives you authority. That's a safer thing. And you will either be an honorable hero or a monster, depending on how you use that authority. And then Augustine said, The woman came from man's rib, not from the legs to be humiliated by him, and not from the head to excel above him, but from the side to be equal with him, from under the arm to be protected by him, and from the heart to be loved by him. It's different, two different pictures, the world's picture of domineering, or the Bible's picture, God's picture of loving. So the husband's leadership of his wife should look primarily like teaching, wooing, exhorting, and modeling. 
It should not look like harshly commanding, chastising, punishing, or manipulating. Later in Paul's letters, he has a command to husbands and wives. Colossians 3.18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's a tough verse in our cultural climate. And it sounds like it's a restriction. It sounds like it's something that's holding people down. But what I want us to see from this story is that that is actually a release and freedom from the curse. If the curse is wives trying to control their husbands and husbands domineering their wife, released from the curse back into God's good design is women who want the leadership of a good husband and husbands who love their wives and aren't harsh with them. That's the reversal of the curse we see in Genesis when that verse comes to pass in our marriages. This vision for marriage is not a constraining thing or a harmful thing. Rather, it's a release from the serpent's distortion and sin's distortion of our marriages. Now, we don't have much time to spend in application, so I just want to skip to the last one here. And like I said, there's probably a lot that I said that provokes more questions and, oh, maybe we have more time to discuss these things as a community. But lastly, I want to ask the question, what's the purpose behind all this? Why is God so intent in these roles in marriage and makes them so prominent at the very beginning of the story? And the answer is, because when marriages function rightly, they're beautiful, living pictures of the gospel right before our eyes. When there's a husband and a wife who so love and trust each other and so embrace their roles and so walk through life united as one, it's a flesh and blood picture of the gospel for anyone who's looking. It's a flesh and blood picture of the gospel for the world. It's a flesh and blood picture of the gospel for our church community. It's a flesh and blood picture of the gospel for our children to grow up watching. In Ephesians 5, when Paul's talking about marriage, he says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so getting our marriages right, forgiving one another, embracing our different roles, is about displaying Christ to the rest of our family. Just as the gospel is the foundation of the church, so a healthy marriage is the foundation of a healthy family. Right? We're going to talk about the roles of parents and children and singles the rest of this week. But as our marriages go, so will go our family. As our marriages go, so will go our community. And so just as the gospel is the foundation of the church, so also... Marriages are the foundations of our families, and so may we strive to get our marriages right. May we strive to be right with the person we're married with, that our families might be saturated with pictures of the gospel, that our church community might be saturated with pictures of the gospel, and that when the world looks at our community, they might see the supernatural picture that marriage is when it functions rightly. Let's pray. Father, your wisdom is beyond our wisdom. 
And I ask that you would take anything that I said and confirm it to be true if it's of you. And if it's not of you, Lord, please help it to pass away. I ask that we would be encouraged in embracing your good design. And that any satanic misunderstandings or misinterpretations of these things would not cause hurt or pain that's unnecessary. But rather, Lord, let us interpret your word rightly, apply it rightly, and see that you have a good heart beating behind every word. Every word, the good heart of God is beating behind it. Yes, Lord. So thank you that you're so good in giving us a good design. Thank you for just giving us marriage. I love my marriage. I love these other marriages here. And such a good gift. So thank you for this gift, Father. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have a few discussion questions here. Uh, I'm just going to ask each husband and wife just to go off somewhere in this room, somewhere in this building, somewhere on the grounds, and just discuss these things. I just have a few question prompts here, but you can ask other questions. You can talk.